Hello, ladies and gentlemen, and welcome back to this week's episode of No Liberty. I'm your host, Caleb Franz. This is the voice of liberty for a new generation. I am thrilled to have you here this week. Um, This week, I am bringing on a special guest. We are continuing our Liberty Canned series here on the program ahead of the 2018 midterm elections. Um, And as I said earlier, it wasn't last week, but I do believe it was the week before, um, that we would be bringing on a guest very shortly that would be um, a fairly fairly big name um, in the Liberty community, Um, somebody who's running for the governor of Florida, of the state of Florida, Um, and his name is Bob White. He is, as I said, running for the governorship in Florida, Um, and he is a very strong Liberty Republican. He has been the chairman of the RLC of Florida. We've worked many times with the RLC here on this program, Um, a, a great group doing a lot of great things. And uh, in this interview, we talk about a wide variety of issues from his campaign and how he's doing um, and why he decided to run, um, as well as some of the specifics that involve um, the gun debate. It involves the Second Amendment. um, It involves criminal justice reform, the environment, um, energy. Uh, and the proper role of government in the economy and 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 so so much more so without further ado i'm very excited to to present to you an interview that i had a lot of fun with um bob was recently just endorsed by um by ron paul for governor and so you can kind of get an idea on where he stands on a lot of the issues but we still go into a lot of those Anyway, and I think he has a very interesting uh, perspective on many of them that is certainly worthwhile and worth listening to. So without further ado, please sit back and enjoy my interview with Bob White running for governor of the state of Florida. All right, Bob, welcome to Liberty. I am thrilled to have you here on the program. Um, welcome. It's great to be with you. Um, so I'm really excited to get to talk with you. I think you're a very interesting candidate uh, for a very important job in the state of Florida. Um, and I'm very happy to have you on as one of our guests on the Liberty Candidate Series. Um, so first, let's go ahead and, and discuss some of the basics. Why, uh, you know, who are you? Where, where did you get the idea and the inspiration to run for governor uh, in, in Florida? And, and what's really motivating you? Sure, of course. Listen, I'm a uh, I'm a fourth generation Floridian. I grew up uh, in Polk County. I now live in Brevard County. Part public schools. Graduated from the University of Central Florida with a degree in business administration. I'm married. Three grown children, four grandchildren, and a fifth grandchild on the way. They're a big uh, motivating factor for me to be involved in this. I just want to make sure that I do everything I can so that Florida becomes and uh, remains the best state in the nation to to raise a family, to start a business. And I want Florida to be that state in the nation where people are largely left alone uh, by their government uh, and are free to pursue their, you know, their own, uh, their own desires uh, in peace uh, and tranquility. I have been, never been, never held public office. I'm running as the outsider against the political establishment. For the last seven years, I've been the chairman of the Republican Liberty Caucus of Florida. In that capacity, I've been going back and forth to Tallahassee uh, at my own expense each year during the legislative session and during committee weeks 
leading up to the session, working on legislation that our organization either supports or opposes. So I know how Tallahassee works. But after seven years of doing this, more importantly, I know how Tallahassee doesn't work. And I have become convinced that Tallahassee doesn't work well for the people of Florida. I think it works great for the political establishment, the politicians, the bureaucrats, the lobbyists, and the special interests that the lobbyists represent. I believe they're a big echo chamber up in Tallahassee listening to each other, taking care of each other's needs, while the needs of the people go largely unmet. And I think the problem, Caleb, comes down to money. Um, I think that the people of Florida have lost their voice in the process. It's been drowned out by hundreds of millions of dollars in dark money, special interest campaign cash that is being laundered, legally laundered, but laundered nonetheless through political committees that are being operated, not just by the special interests, but by the politicians themselves. It's how they get around the caps on their campaign accounts. It's how they are able to hide from the people of Florida where much of the money comes from in the first place that fuels their campaigns. And it's also how they're able to disguise, in many respects, what they're actually using the money for that they're raising through these political committees. So it really is a swamp. Uh, It needs to be drained. We've got to have significantly more accountability and transparency in the area of campaign finance. So that was a big issue for me, a motivational issue that got me looking at this race in the first place. How can we how can we rein in that, that dark money aspect of campaign finance? How can we make it more accountable, make it more transparent? Uh, so that got me focused on the race. Uh, it's not the most important issue, but it's certainly a, a defining issue for me. But there's lots of other uh, hugely important issues, education, job growth, economic opportunity, uh, you know, health care, the environment. There's lots of important issues. But uh, that was probably the one that got me most focused on the race to begin with. Um, so, and and we'll go over many of those issues uh, throughout throughout the course of this interview. But I, I I'm really curious about what is your sort of governing philosophy. Where where do you see the role of 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 government? If if you were to be elected governor, what would what would you view your job as being? Um, I know recently you were you know endorsed by Ron Paul, so there's probably I assume a lot of overlap right there. Um, and uh, what kind of separates you from uh, any of the other candidates running in, in the race uh, that, that uh, you're running in? Sure. Well, you know, as the chairman of the Republican Liberty Caucus of Florida, you know, we're, we, we believe we're the conscience of the Republican Party. Uh, a lot of people refer to us as the libertarian wing of the Republican Party. Mm-hmm. You know, the RLC believes in, you know, in, in free people, in free markets, in limited government. So I'm, you know, I'm the guy in the race that's saying that government should do only those things, really, that the people can't do for themselves. So we should have a, a constitutionally limited government. And I also believe that the state government all around the country need to start pushing back really hard against the federal government. Mm-hmm. Um, I think the federal government has absolutely uh, gotten out of its box. Uh, the enumerated powers mean absolutely nothing to uh uh, to the Congress and, and the executive branch up in uh, Washington, D.C., and so we have all kinds of unconstitutional intrusions. Uh, education is probably the, you know, the one that comes to mind the quickest, and, and it's probably where the most damage is being done. Uh, and so I'm, I'm actually advocating for, uh, for pushing back against the federal government when it comes to the Department of Education. I want to get us out of Common Core entirely. Mm-hmm. Um, and and would do everything in my power to um, to do that. So nullification is a big issue for me. We will 
uh, you know, we'll look for ways uh, to nullify unconstitutional intrusions of the federal government into uh, into our state. And I think that definitely sets me apart from the other candidates in this race. I'm not sure they even understand what the concept of nullification is. <laughs> well, that's certainly a friendly word here in uh, on this program. Um, so I, I'm curious, why why governor? Why, uh, why does that position, why was that the uh, sort of role that you wanted to fill instead of maybe another role, maybe a, a state or, you know, lower state uh, role or maybe a higher um, federal role. What about that position attracted you? Well, you know, I'm 61 years old <laughs> and uh, the, the legislative process in Florida, you know, generally if you're going to run for the Florida House, you're going to have to be there for four years before you're really beginning to amass the kind of influence uh, that you would need to bring about significant change. Mm-hmm. So in, in choosing to run for governor, the idea was that uh, by traveling the state of Florida extensively, which I have done, I've put almost 60,000 miles on my vehicle since I announced, and I've been all the way, for, I've been everywhere from Miami to Pensacola, all points in between. It's a very large state, uh, and but I'm carrying this message uh, everywhere that I go uh, about campaign finance reform and about, you know, the federal the federal bureaucracy versus the state bureaucracy, you know, those kinds of issues, talking about Common Core and, and other federal intrusions into, you know, into, into Florida governance. Uh, and so we're basically trying to open up the, you know, people's eyes uh, to what's going on and trying to, trying to basically educate people to what's happening. Um, you know, everybody has a good sense that there's something not right, but they don't all necessarily understand exactly what it is or, or why things are happening the way that they are. So, we're on really a, a, almost like a crusade as much as a campaign, quite frankly. Um, so my attitude is is that, yeah, it's a huge, huge state, and it's a big, big office, and it requires you know a ton of work, but win, lose, or draw, I'm going to have an impact um, statewide as a result of this campaign, and we're going to build uh, a grassroots uh, effort at bringing a bring bringing about the kinds of reforms that we think need to be put in place. Uh, and we'll pave the way uh, for other people uh, to be able to come behind us and have a, you know, a better chance to run on these same kinds of issues uh, down the road. Um, so real quick, before we start getting into more of the, the specifics, the ideological and, and some policy specifics, um, how has your campaign been going so far? Well, you know, the Ron Paul endorsement, which you mentioned earlier, was a, a huge shot in the arm. Uh, organizationally, we're doing well around the state of Florida. We've got uh, strong support in different areas. The Panhandle's a, a huge area for us in terms of support. We've got good groups in northeast Florida and, and down in the, in the central Florida area. Our organizations in southwest Florida and southeast Florida are building and growing. Uh, those things are all very positive. Um, our the big challenge that we face as a campaign is is the money. Uh, when you when you're when you're running as an outsider against the political establishment, and you're running on a platform of campaign finance reform, and you're going around talking about how you know the special interests uh, are are trying to literally buy influence and buy control uh, in Tallahassee, um, you know you don't you're certainly closing yourself off to an entire you know source of funding that might otherwise be available to you. But I'm okay with that. Um, we knew from the very beginning that this was going to be an issue for us and that this was going to be our challenge. So, And it's proven to be exactly that. It's, it's, it's a huge challenge. It's 
Florida's got like eight or nine uh, major media markets and, you know, trying to compete on television uh, in those eight or nine media markets, we're probably not going to be able to do that. So we're running a, a grassroots campaign. We just started a, a media campaign through Facebook and YouTube. You know, we're going to do everything we can to get our message out that way. Uh, the two the two main contenders in this race, Adam Putnam and Ron DeSantis, are, they're raising a lot of money, but, you know, they're going to spend a lot of that money tearing each other up. Mm-hmm. Um, and driving each other's negatives up. Mm-hmm. And I'm going to stay consistent and stay on message and and hope and believe that as people get deeper into this race and it gets uglier and nastier on their part, that they'll be looking for an alternative, and I'm going to position myself to be the alternative that they turn to. I will tell you this. Our strategy, when we got into the race back in May of last year, we really thought it was going to be a much more crowded primary than it's turning out to be. At that time, we believed that uh, there was a state senator here, Jack Latvala, uh, who was an announced candidate. Uh, he had to drop out because of some uh, because of some scandals that took place um, uh, late last year up in Tallahassee. So he ended up having to drop out. Another candidate that we thought was going to be in the race, Richard Corcoran, who's currently the Speaker of the Florida House, he's decided not to run. So we really thought it was going to be a much more crowded primary. We thought that with five major candidates and a few lesser candidates in the race, the, the vote would split out. It's a plurality, not a majority. Uh, so, you know, that part of the strategy is is not coming to fruition the way that we thought it would. There will only be, um, you know, three really quality candidates in the race uh, and some lesser ones. And so it's going to be tougher for us, but, you know, we're determined to see it through to the end and make sure that we give people the alternative the alternative that they deserve. Um, so let's start getting into a few uh, specifics about what what you think about certain uh, issues that have come up in the in the in the national spotlight and the state spotlight, um, and um, and go from there. So first of all, I want to sort of talk about a few economic issues um, and and sort of get a feel for where where you stand on on some of those. Um, obviously, Florida is one of the more prosperous states in in the union i feel like it's safe to say um why do you feel like it it has gained so much you know economic momentum and what would you do to help uh push that forward and help uh, expand that sure well we're a low tax state to begin with we have no person we have no state income tax there are no cities in florida that have income taxes we do have a property tax but it's uh I mean, relative to other states like New York and California and others around the country, it's a, it's, it's fairly modest uh, in terms of the impact that it has on on, uh, on, on folks. So we're a very tax-friendly state. Uh, we have a low corporate income tax. We do have one issue. One we have, we do, We're the only state in the nation that has a sales tax on corporate leases, which is, I think, a kind of a ridiculous thing and needs to be eliminated immediately. It doesn't raise that much money to begin with, but it can be an impediment to smaller businesses that are looking to expand and, and grow and maybe open up, you know, additional offices or locations. Uh, so we've got that tax-friendly environment. Of course, our, our you know, year-round sunshine. Uh, we don't have the harsh winters that, uh, you know, that other places have. So we have a very friendly, you know, environmental kind of a situation for, for companies that want to relocate here. Um, you know, our current governor, Rick Scott, had kind of a two-pronged approach to uh, to growing business and creating jobs here in the state of Florida. And I agree wholeheartedly with one of the two prongs. I disagree with the other prong entirely. 
What I agree with is that he's made several substantial efforts at deregulation and at uh, tax reform to try to make Florida an even more friendly uh, environment for, you know, for businesses. Uh, the, the part that I don't agree with is he's also had this program called Enterprise Florida for the first seven years of the administration where he was literally going out of state and trying to recruit large corporations to come into Florida and was putting up millions of dollars in taxpayer grants, just flat out, just stroke a check, give them cash if they come to Florida agreeing to bring X number of jobs with them. Uh, I don't agree with that. I consider that corporate welfare. I think it's uh, it's the state picking winners and losers. And when it comes right down to it, if you if you have a, a really good understanding of, of free market economics and how jobs get created, you know from history that jobs are generally created uh, at at the small business level and at the startup level much more so than they are at the large corporate level. The large corporate level may be more glamorous; it may get more attention. But most jobs are, are, are created at the small business startup level. So my approach would be level the playing field entirely, more deregulation, get rid of some of the onerous licensing laws that we have in Florida. I mean, we license people that, you know, you can't braid hair uh, in Florida if, sure. if, unless you get a license to sure. do it. And licensing, I mean, licensing laws are, are generally, you know, they're set up by by folks that are already in a particular industry or business in right. order to try to keep competition out. Right. And so I want to get rid of all of these needless licensing laws and really open it up for more people to be able to create new businesses. And I think that's the way we really grow jobs in Florida. The other program that he was doing, I mean, think about it. You know, taxpayers, we're taking taxpayer money, some of it coming from, from business owners. Uh, and we're going to attract people into the state that are going to end up competing in some ways with some of these business owners that are already here. Doesn't make any sense. So I'd get rid of that program and just completely deregulate and eliminate all these these onerous licensing laws, and uh, and continue with the tax reform. Get rid of the uh, the sales tax on corporate leases, and uh, and continue to try to do everything we can to work down the you know the corporate income tax that we charge. Um, so yeah, obviously. You, you mentioned things about the free market and things like that. Would you say you're, you're fairly laissez-faire when it comes to economics? And if there is a role for government, what would you say that role would probably be when it comes to the economy? I've always described myself as being laissez-faire when it comes to the economy. I do think the government should keep its hands off as, as much as absolutely possible. I think that, um, you know, obviously there, you know, Safety, uh, you know, health and safety are, are issues where in some industries, you know, there should be some there should be some oversight by government. Right. Uh, that, you know, we have we have um, uh, you know in the energy field, uh, energy suppliers. Uh, you know, Florida has a, a public service commission that that uh, sets rates and approves the expansion of power plants and those kinds of things. You know, our our, our power companies in Florida are, are government regulated monopolies, basically. Um, and, uh, so, you know, we have to have some, we have to have some regulation there. Uh, and then we have some areas where there's some new kinds of industries that are coming online, like, you know, uh, network transportation companies, Uber and Lyft. Mm-hmm. Uh, Florida did just pass a statute this past year to come up with a statewide, um, uh, regulatory, uh, framework for, for that industry because they were faced with a situation where, 
you know, every single local government in the state was trying to develop, and county government, where they were all trying to develop their own regulations for network transportation companies. So that was gonna, that was just going to be a nightmare for for operators trying who were crossing county lines trying to figure out, you know, what they have to do to be in compliance in, in, in different areas. So, you know, having one statewide um, statute that governs that governs that industry makes sense. Um, you know, so so I look at I look at things from a practical standpoint uh, and and try to determine, uh, you know, how how I'm all for local I'm all for local control I'm all for pushing government down to the lowest possible levels but there are some areas where the state does have a an overriding uh, uh, obligation to make sure that things are set up fair. So, so to your last point, I just want to make it make it clear. Um, it has more to do with, as far as like you know, ride sharing things and stuff like that. That had more to do with making things um, uniform instead of instead of rather having like the states have more control over that industry. That's exactly right. Operators, the the individual operators, need to have. They need to have a, a real clear understanding of, yeah. of what it is exactly that, that they're supposed to be doing. Uh, and when you have 67 counties and, and each one of these counties has a number of different municipalities in some cases that are all trying to make their own rules up as they go along, well, that makes it extraordinarily difficult for the actual operator. So we just need right. to yeah make it uniform and make it standard so that they understand what they're doing. Okay. Um, so I, I sort of want to shift to another really important issue um, that I, I noticed was on your uh, campaign site. And I think it's an issue that is really um, becoming one of the top issues uh, nationally across the country uh, that is gaining a lot of support from a lot of people. And that is um, criminal justice reform. Where do you stand on, on criminal justice reform? And what are some of the solutions that you see uh, fit uh, in addressing the issue. Sure. Well, Florida has one of the highest incarceration rates per capita, if not the very highest incarceration rate per capita of any state in the country. Uh, and we spend an extraordinary amount of money uh, uh, in on our Florida prison system, and we've gone to they tried to go to a privatization uh, approach on on a lot of our on a lot of our prisons not all of them but many of them became privatized and i'm you know look i'm one of these guys that believes in privatization but i don't believe in it when it comes to our prison system and i think that the experience that we've had in florida is showing us just how bad it can be because what typically happens is if you're bringing in a private prison operator to take over a prison, the state has to guarantee them a certain percentage of occupancy in order for it to make sense for them economically. Yeah. So what ends up happening is, is that the state legislature ends up uh, ends up creating um, uh, minimum mandatories in for non certain nonviolent uh, offenses uh, at that in, just in order to try to keep the occupancy rates high, and that's that's absolutely unacceptable. Uh, so, you know, we're incarcerating people for, you know, for nonviolent, victimless crimes, um, and we're, we're literally taking people and almost turning them into felons as opposed to, as opposed to, to trying to come up with a more reasonable approach. And we've, we've just now, in the, within the last week or two, uh, we've learned that uh, we've got this budget crisis within the prisons, and so, you know, what are they doing? They're cutting back on their their drug and alcohol rehabilitation programs, and they're cutting back on their uh, re-entry programs. Uh, and so all that's going to do long-term is create a, a spike in recidivism 
which is going to end up costing us millions and millions of dollars more down the road than the $30 million that they're trying to save now, um, you know, by eliminating or cutting back, I should say, on those programs. So, you know, we definitely need criminal justice reform. We've got to be a lot smarter about the way we operate our prisons and about who we incarcerate and why. Um, and then, of course, you've got, you know, the, the whole issue of felon, you know, restoring voting rights and those kinds of things mm-hmm. that have been hotly debated here in Florida for the last uh, for the last year. Mm-hmm. We're going to have a we're going to have a, uh, a ballot referendum uh, to try to amend the Constitution to to make it automatic. And that's creating a lot of controversy. So that is a, it is a big issue. And, uh, you know, we've got to have, uh, you know, we've got to be smart about what we do. We've got to reduce the, uh, the incarceration rate per capita in Florida. It's just way out of control. Do you, do you see that as a, because um, I, I see criminal justice reform as something that really overlaps into so many other areas and so many other policy areas. Um, uh, gun rights is one, um, uh, jobs and uh, unemployment is another one. Uh, for example, I, I saw, I think I saw an article uh, this week, this past week or the week before that, where it said there's as many um, jobs available as there are um, unemployed people, which on the surface level, that, that seems great. But, you know, you dig a little deeper into it and that isn't necessarily a problem that can be fixed in and of itself because um, for several people it's very difficult for them to get a job even if they even if there are jobs available but just because they have that sort of felony on their on their record um, and and nobody wants to to hire them do you see that as sort of a an, an economic benefit to to push through criminal justice reform um, as well as as just the obvious moral benefits that that uh, goes along with it as well. Absolutely, it does. I mean, in many cases, we're taking breadwinners, family breadwinners, uh, out of the house and incarcerating them. Uh, so what do we do now? Now the state of Florida is basically paying for the upkeep of the individual that we've incarcerated, and the family that's left behind now needs assistance in order to be able to survive without that that primary breadwinner still out there earning an income for the family. So that's costing the state of Florida money. And then, as you said, we're putting people in prisons that don't belong there, giving them a record, uh, and it, then it makes them makes it more difficult for them to become employed down the road. So, yeah, you're abs- that's absolutely correct. Uh, it, does have an, it does have an economic impact that's uh, very far-reaching. Yeah, it seems very counter, uh, counterproductive when, if you want to keep them out of prison, you know, you slap that felony on them for something that really is 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 either nonviolent or ha- affects nobody but themselves, and then you're essentially forcing them back into that that life of crime, and they're back to to square one, and that just to me is is bonkers. Exactly right. I agree with that a hundred percent. Um, so let's let's switch to another sort of hot button issue that has really captivated I know Florida um, more than more than most states, um, and that is with uh, with gun control and and the Second Amendment. Uh, Florida has been right in 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 the in the front line with um, with the Parkland shooting this past year, and then the Orlando shooting um, uh, shortly there before um where is your sort of where where do you stand on on the second amendment i sort of get a feel of of where you stand but more importantly what i want to ask is um 
what is your response and how, how do you see is the most effective way of addressing these sort of tragedies that occur just far too often? Okay, well, well first let me just say this. Florida is, um, we're the third largest state in the nation uh, population-wise. Mm-hmm. And we are, by depending on which study you look at, we're either 47th or 49th in the nation uh, in spending per capita on mental health. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and, and these are these are figures that have been available, readily available, and well known for a number of years now. Uh, and so, from my perspective, this was a failure on the part of government at many levels. Uh, we all, uh, you know, the failures of government at the local level down in down in in Parkland are, are extremely well documented. The failures on the part of the FBI are extremely well documented. Uh, at the state level, the Department of Children and Family Services, those failures have been extremely well documented. You know, I look at the state legislature and I say to myself, you know, how in the world could they fail to anticipate the potential for a tragedy like this happening, knowing about our population and about our spending on mental health, having seen what just happened at the Orlando Pulse nightclub, you know, we had another shooting down at the airport in Fort Lauderdale sure, where eight people yeah. were killed. Yeah. Uh, to have sat on their hands and, and done nothing until this catastrophe, this horrible tragedy happened, and then to react uh, almost in panic mode out of desperation to just try to get something done so that they could say that they did something, to me, that does not constitute leadership. As, a, as the chairman of the Republican Liberty Caucus of Florida, I've been going back and forth to Tallahassee for seven years, as I said, and we have always been very pro-Second Amendment as an organization. Uh, we believe in the Second Amendment. We believe in the right of citizens to be able to keep and bear arms. We've Over the years, we've worked on you know, bills like open carry and campus carry and bringing about an end to government-mandated gun-free zones. What's really interesting, Caleb, is that you know, one of the more controversial aspects of the Marjorie Stoneman Douglas school safety bill that got passed out by the legislature in response to this tragedy has been what they're calling their Marshall program, where uh, local school districts working with their county sheriffs could could arm, could actually uh, deputize, train and deputize school staff, employees, teachers, what have you, uh, to be able to carry concealed on campus. Um, two years ago, in 2016, our organization supported a piece of legislation that would have done the same thing. Um, it would have literally authorized district superintendents with the approval of their school boards, networking in con- conjunction with local law enforcement for the proper amount of training and certifications to actually create school security plans that would include designating members of the staff uh, or faculty at different schools to be school security officers that would be authorized to be able to conceal carry uh, on these campuses. And that was two years ago, uh, and it could have been done in a dispassionate way, not in response to a tragedy where everybody is is obviously, um, uh, you know, emotional and and acting, you know, in out of sight, outside the norm. Yeah, very know. irrational. Uh, exactly. I mean, yeah. if we had done this two years ago, taking the opportunity then, you know, who knows? This coach, Coach Weiss, who gave his life up protecting his students, perhaps he'd still be alive and many of the students would still be alive because perhaps he could have been one of those marshals and he could have taken out the gunman. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, gun, gun-free zones or killing zones, I don't care what anybody says. Yeah. And, you know, the gun is an, inan- it's an inanimate object. It does not just jump up on its own 
and start killing people. It's the person behind the gun that's that's doing the damage. And so, um, you know, the mental health issues have got to be addressed. Uh, the and I, you know, we've got to start figuring out ways to house people who are dangerous, uh, and so so that they're not a threat to society. Um, and uh, but I don't think that uh, that gun control uh, is is the answer. Um, so I I sort of want to play devil's advocate a little bit with this um, because sure. I agree with a lot of what with a lot of what you said. Um, but a common response would be, you know, if you give somebody a, a gun who's who's in the faculty of a school. Um, that's not a guarantee that they're going to, you know, that they're going to actually be able to stop a shooting. Very rarely have, you know, have um, gun people with with guns, good guys with guns, so to speak, have have stopped shooting. So why should we expect this to be different? Well, actually, I do think that there have been many documented cases of uh, of good guys with guns that have, in fact, um, you know, stopped shooters uh, dead in their tracks. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, you know, before before they could before they could inflict mass amounts of carnage. One thing that we do know is this: um, even school resource officers, uh, it, unless you've got several of them, uh, I mean, these campuses that we have today are quite large. Um, many acres of, of ground are covered. You know, you've got football fields and other athletic fields, and in many cases, we've got a single resource officer uh, responsible for an entire school area. Uh, and but there are many points where where a, a bad guy with a gun could access the schools, so we got to have we got to have more, you know, we got to have more hardening of our campus. There's no question about that. But the thing about these martial programs, the way they're be, the way they're being envisioned, and the way that that people are are that local county sheriffs are, are talking about trying to implement them, the actual the actual deputized school marshal would actually get more training not less training, but more training than the police officers or the sheriff's deputies typically get um, in terms of dealing with active shooter situations. It's, 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 it's a fairly limited degree of training uh, and practice that, uh, that LEOs, that licensed, uh, that law enforcement officers uh, get and receive on a routine basis. And many of them will tell you that these programs that are being talked about Literally, that you'll have more training and better training uh, for the, you know, the, the school marshal than for an SRO. Um, I mean, I know that from speaking to my own sheriff. I know it from speaking to others that are retired law enforcement, and you know, they'll just tell you flat out, our local law enforcement officers, God bless them for what they do, and uh, I appreciate every single one of them and support them in, in what they do, um, but. They don't get the kind of training that, that they're being talked about for, for these other positions. The other thing about these positions is that they're all voluntary, and the people that are going to volunteer are going to be people that are already comfortable with firearms. They're going to be people that already are concealed carry permit holders. They already train on a routine and regular basis, Sure. even more so than, than local law enforcement does. So they'll actually be better trained and be as comfortable with their firearms as with the local school resource officer that they're talking about uh, putting in there and mm-hmm. and they do care about their kids they do love their kids and and if you've got them uh, in in the campus you know in varying places i think there's a, a much faster response i mean think about it these these responses to these situations i mean 
the damage is done in the first two to five minutes. And it typically takes five to eight minutes for even an on-campus school resource officer to be in a position to respond. So we've got to have a faster response when, when things do go bad. Um, so I want to get into just uh, one, maybe two more uh, issues before we begin to wind down here. Um, I know that sure. that uh, campaign finance reform was a, a, a an issue that motivated you to run. Um, I I recently had um, well, not recently. It was a few weeks ago now, but I recently had the uh, the executive director from U.S. Term Limits on on the program, and I'm curious about where where you stand on this and how you view this. Um, do you see that term limits could be a sort of a a form of, of finance reform? Well, um, by by, I'm sure you're talking about Nick Tombalides. Nick's a good friend of mine. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. Now we live here right here in Melbourne in the same community, and I'm I'm a huge supporter of term limits. Mm-hmm. Uh, we're going to have a term limit amendment on the ballot to term limit our, our, our school board members here in uh, here in Florida. Um, you know, it, I don't know that term limits is necessarily going to be uh, have a significant impact on on campaign finance reform. I mean, in Florida, we already have term limits for our governor, our cabinet, our state house, our state legislatures. Virtually every county, almost every county, has term limits for. It's, uh, it's county commissioners as well as for its uh, local uh, municipalities, you know, council people, et cetera. About the only people left in, in Florida that, that don't have term limits are constitutional officers in many cases and school board members. Um, so this, this one ballot will, will bring school board members. Uh, that'll be term, they'll be term limited as a result of that, but not necessarily our constitutional officers. Because the big issue is at the federal level, Congress, you know, they'll never term limit themselves. Right. Uh, you'll see a lot of people running on that issue, but uh, you know, the, the idea that they're ever going to term limit themselves is pretty remote. Uh, so in Florida, I, you know, we've got term limits, and we have, uh, and we have a dark money problem. We have a special interest funding uh, problem in Florida, even though we're already term limited. So I don't know that it's necessarily going to help uh, significantly in that regard. Um. So one of the last issues I want to touch on is, um, you know, you've talked about um, uh, you've talked a little bit about the environment and how, how that's sort of an important, uh, important issue uh, that especially in the state like Florida, energy is a very Florida is a very big energy powerhouse. Um, where what what's sort of your energy approach um, in regards to sort of balancing the economy with the environment? OK, well. The big problem that we have environmentally in Florida right now uh, that's got everybody's attention is, you know, surface waters. Uh, you know, I live in Brevard County. Our big issue up here is the Indian River Lagoon. Uh, but, of course, we've got Lake Okeechobee is a huge issue. The Everglades is always an issue. The Caloosahatchee River that drains out of Lake Okeechobee, the St. Lucie River that flows out of, you know, out of Lake Okeechobee. Uh, one goes west, the other goes east. Uh, We've got terrible, terrible surface water pollution problems. Some of our springs in northeast and northwest Florida are, are big problems. Florida has, here, and here's, <laughs> here's what just really infuriates me. There's approximately 34,900,000 and some odd thousand total acres of land in the land mass of Florida. And 50% of that is already owned by government at some level. 30% of it is purely for, is owned purely for uh, for pre- what they call preservation purposes. You know, at some point, enough is enough. 
uh, in terms of the state, you know, taking uh, taking property off the tax rolls and owning it for you know for preservation purposes or what have you. Uh, but yet, this past year in the legislative session, they they authorized another hundred million dollars that will likely be bonded and therefore will end up being millions and millions of dollars more uh, for for purchase of what they call preservation land. And what I've said is that we ought not be spending another penny for purchasing real estate until we've gotten these these water issues resolved. Uh, because that's that's a long-term problem for us as a state is resolving these these water issues that we have, uh, and so unless unless we're buying a piece of property to create additional retention so that water that overflows from Lake Okeechobee uh, and in high and peak rainy season uh, a place to hold it and and filter it before it before it goes into the Everglades or goes into the aquifer, you know unless unless that's what the property is being purchased for, we shouldn't be purchasing any more real estate in Florida. We don't do a good job maintaining what we already own. We don't do a good job opening up what we've already purchased for the, you know, for the benefit of outdoors people and, uh, you know, for recreational purposes and those kinds of things. And I think that's wrong. The the property belongs to the, the if we bought it, and I think we've bought too much already. But if we if we bought it and if we own it, we own it in trust for the people of Florida, and we ought to be figuring out ways to open it up for their enjoyment. And we ought to be figuring out ways to sell off those those parts of the properties that we've bought that we don't really need for preservation purposes. So often we bought, you know, the state might have needed 150 or 500 acres and ended up buying 1,000 or 2,000 acres to get the three or 400 acres that they wanted in the first place because, you know, that was the, that was the size of the total tract and that was the only thing that the, um, that the property owner would agree to sell. So we've got lots of excess real estate that I think that we could sell off and reduce the amount of, reduce the footprint that we own uh, by government in the state of Florida. Uh, and still be doing what we need to do uh, for preservation purposes, uh, but we've got to get these water quality problems uh, resolved before we before we buy any additional land. And I think we're probably at that point where enough is enough already, anyway. Um, so before we before we close out here, I want to go through a really quick sort of lightning you know flash round um, to get to get a, a few of your your insights about uh, about you and and. Um, and uh, sort of the way how you think. So how? Sure. Let me let me. Okay, let me start with this one. Um, what uh, what book has had the the biggest influence on you? Uh, there are two books. Uh, one would be uh, Ron Paul's book uh, Revolution: A Manifesto. That's a that's a big influencer for me. Years and years ago, back when I was still in college, uh, some forty years ago, uh, roughly, I read a book by uh, Robert Ringer, Restoring the American Dream. That one had a huge impact on me. Uh, and Tom Wood's book, Nullification, uh, is one that had a, a major impact on me as well. All right, those are all uh, pretty solid books, so I think you, you definitely uh, get a pass on those. <laughs> um, what, okay. what, uh, what individual has sort of had the, the biggest impact on your ideology? Well, if we're thinking, if we're going to, if we're going to think back in, in terms of founding fathers, uh, I would, I would point to Thomas Jefferson, mm-hmm. uh, you know, as, as of the founders, the one that had, you know, the greatest influence on me. I mean, I'm, I'm sitting here at my desk in my home office and I have this big poster on the, on the wall above my desk and it's got a picture of Thomas Jefferson and then it's got a quote from Thomas Jefferson. The quote is, I have sworn upon the altar of God eternal hostility against every form of tyranny over the mind of man. Mm-hmm. Um, 
you know, so uh, that goes to that goes to limited government, and it goes to keeping the government out of the business of, of people's daily lives. Uh, and so I, I would say Thomas Jefferson had a huge influence. My father also had a huge influence on me. He was uh, he was a banker by profession, um, and but had majored in psychology in college. So he had a major influence in terms of in terms of economic issues and those kinds of things. Um, what modern day, um, what modern day politician do you look at and, and, and sit back and think, you know, if, if I win, this is how, this is the kind of person I want to govern like. Well, I'll just come up with some names that I think most of your listeners will recognize. Um, of course there's Rand Paul, Mm -hmm. there's Mike Lee, uh, Thomas Massey, Justin Amash, Mm -hmm. You know, these are all people that I look to and say, you know, they've got the right idea, they've got the right philosophy. Um, you know, they're doing, you know, they're doing what they can, uh, you know, to uphold constitutional integrity uh, and, and those kinds of issues. So, so uh, you know, at, at that level, those would be the names. There's, there are some people here, you know, in, um, in, in Florida that uh, there's one guy in the state Senate in particular who uh, I think, I think has really a, a solid foundation is a guy named Jeff Brandis, uh, and he's over in the Tampa Bay area uh, of Florida. He's been a state senator now for a number of years, and he's been championing criminal justice reform, and he's always had, you know, a really solid uh, conservative uh, outlook on things. There are a few people in the Florida House that are that are also, um, uh, you know, constitutionalists. There's a guy out of Jacksonville named Cord Bird uh, that I think is solid uh when it comes to the constitution and those kinds of things um and finally where can people find out more about your campaign where can people find you on social media um if they want to either get in touch or get involved sure well the website is uh bob florida.com and that's the word for not the number so bob f-o-r florida.com and, you know, my platform is there, lots of interviews and, and videos and things like that. And they can, they can volunteer through the website. They can make a contribution through the website, both of which are vitally important. Um, my Facebook page is uh, Bob White for Florida Governor. Uh, we also have another Facebook page, which is Bob White for Florida Governor Campaign Team. So there are two Facebook pages there. The the first one, they can use that one to follow me. They can like and follow our campaign and, and help us, you know, by sharing all the videos and things that we're putting out. The other one, if they really want to get involved with us, they can go to the other one, Bob White for Florida Governor Campaign Team, and, and, uh, and ask, uh, ask to join the team, and we can bring them on. That would be great. On Twitter, it's uh, at Bob White for Gov. Uh, that's G-O-V, not the word spelled out, just at Bob White for Gov. And uh, they can follow us on Twitter, and our Twitter volume uh, has been increasing uh, uh, pretty exponentially here over the last uh, over the last few weeks, especially since we got the Ron Paul endorsement. That's, we've really seen a shot in the arm there. Mm-hmm. All right, Bob. Um, thank you very much for for coming on the program. Thank you very much for um, giving me your time and, and giving my listeners uh, your time um, because I think you are. A really important voice and uh, somebody who will certainly uh, make some sort of an impact regardless of, of what the outcome of the election ends up being. Um, and I, I hope a lot of people will uh, check you out and, uh, you know, find out for, for themselves. So thank you for coming on the program. 
Well, Caleb, thank you for what you do, number one, uh, and thank you for having me on your show. Uh, I've enjoyed it, and uh, hopefully maybe we'll get a chance to do it again someday down the road. Absolutely. And um, for everyone listening, you can follow me at Caleb Franz on Twitter. You can follow the show at Liberty on Twitter. You can subscribe to us on iTunes so you so that you will never miss an episode or an update. Um, and be sure to check us out on Patreon at Outset Network. And until next week, we will see you.